Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. Sponsored by Company 3, a world leader in color artistry and science, supporting filmmakers from pre-production through post for over two decades. Greetings, my name is Ian Marks. I'm a contributing writer for American Cinematographer Magazine, and in this episode of the American Cinematographer Podcast, I'll be speaking with Director of Photography Alexander Dynan about his work on the Paul Schrader film First Reformed. In First Reformed, Ethan Hawke plays Reverend Toller, the tormented spiritual leader of a small upstate New York parish, whose despair and disillusionment about the world is given focus when a young pregnant parishioner named Mary, played by Amanda Seyfried, seeks his guidance. Well, how can I help you? Um, I was wondering if you would talk to my husband, Michael. Oh, sure. Mate. Actually, not now. He used to he used to go to work. He used to fill in at Home Depot. Mary, what is it? I'm worried about him. He's involved in the Green Planet Movement. It's an activist group, mm -hmm. and he was in jail in Canada. And he just got out two weeks ago. He just sits around at home. He doesn't he doesn't go out. I got him to fill out a temp form for for. Home Depot. Um, so that's good. You sure you don't want to go to Abundant Life? They have a whole team of counselors over there who are trained. I know, but he doesn't want to. He thinks it's more of a company than a church. And so he said he would talk to you. Uh, all right. Tomorrow? After lunch. Great. Great. I'll just need the, uh, just need an address. And now, can you tell me a little more? Uh, he applied for compassionate release when he found out. He was at Fort Providence. They let him out early. Wait, no. Um, found out what? That I, I was pregnant. Oh. Hmm. Congratulations. Thanks. He, he thinks it's wrong to bring a child into this world. He wants to kill our baby. First Reformed kind of flew under the radar in 2018. It's one of those films that a lot of people have heard about but haven't seen. But this is a film that should be seen, if not for its uniformly solid performances, then for its distinctive visual language, first laid out in Schrader's 1972 book, Transcendental Style in Film. Now, Every film employs its own language, but few films that I've seen recently are as deliberate and committed to a particular syntax as this one. And after first seeing it, I knew I had to speak with Dynan about its composition. And on that note, it's highly recommended that you watch First Reformed and also listen to Paul Schrader's disc commentary before listening to this podcast. So assuming you've done that already, I hope you enjoy the interview recorded at Showtime's Billions office in Brooklyn, where Dynan is currently in production on the series' fourth season. I want to begin by touching upon your creative relationship with Paul Schrader, which began with Dog Eat Dog, a film that couldn't be more different from First Reformed. Yeah, that's very true. It was, okay, so it was your first feature, uh, first feature for much of the creative crew. What were you doing before that? My background actually started in, uh, in anthropology. I did uh, sort of documentary anthropology work for a long time. That was sort of my background, more doing these very process-oriented films. And I lived in India for a while and made documentaries there. And then through a series of weird events, I sort of became a commercial DP. And I was doing commercials for the past 10 plus years. 
I've wanted to make the transition to narrative film for a while and Paul was looking for some new voices and we met and got along and started working on Dog Eat Dog together. He said that he wanted to work with people who thought outside of the box. He said this on the disc commentary for First Reformed. Is that how you see yourself or, or is that an accurate description of your philosophy? I don't know. I mean, that's a great description. Um, obviously, Paul has his own narrative, which I think is great too. What, what do you think he saw? Like, did you guys have that conversation? Things that he wanted from you as a seasoned filmmaker looking for someone yeah. who has a different perspective than him? Yeah. I mean, I think he was just looking for ideas, you know, when we first met. And I had this booklet of ways I see this film playing out. And especially Dog Eat Dog, he was really looking to do something very outside of the box, for, even for him, which is saying something. You know, I think Paul makes lots of different types of films, and, and this was one he really wanted to push uh, to see what, how far he could stretch the medium within his own mind. With First Reformed, you're employing a very restrictive style, the transcendental style of cinema, which is the expression of a spiritual state by means of austere camera work, acting devoid of self-consciousness, and editing that avoids comment. Did this subject come up uh, in your interactions with Schrader prior to First Reformed? To a certain extent, but not really. I mean, the use of transcendental style in First Reformed is something that really came up with that project. He spoke a lot about ways that we get people to lean out of their seats and lean into the movie. That had a lot to do with the ways that we approached what a lot would call a very restrictive style within First Reformed. But that being said, you know, Paul has a great saying, make a rule, break a rule. So he's always making rules and breaking them. That's part of what makes him such an interesting filmmaker. And if you look at his body of work, he's constantly doing that in the same way. But there's something great to making small budget films with restrictions. I think it really helps you. You know, maybe Dog Eat Dog, we didn't impose enough restrictions, or really restrictions weren't a part of that story and, and a part of the way that he wanted to approach it. So it was really exciting to be able to be put in a box and say, okay, well, we're not gonna move the camera, and so we're gonna rely very heavily on staging. We're gonna use limited lenses, and um, we're gonna give it a very austere look. And that was all informed by Paul's incredible scholarship, you know. Obviously, Transcendental Style in Cinema was, was written when he was at UCLA, and you know, he has a great film theory background and is a great film scholar. And so, you know, First Reformed is built out of so many other films as Paul also says, he steals around. You know, you have lots of really great stuff to draw from. So it's twofold. It's, it's transcendental style in cinema. It's, it's, it's hearkening back to making those kind of films. Um, and then uh, at the same time, it's also being heavily influenced by the films that he loved, of Brisson and Dreyer and that kind of thing. I'm gonna read from a list of films that uh, he's stolen around from, films that employ the transcendental style in some way, then also inform the making of First Reformed. Uh, we have Ida for the black and white 133 format, Voyage in Italy for the credit sequence, Silent Light, the long opening shot, Pickpocket for the, the journaling motif, uh, Winter Light for the, the milieu, and then Ordet for the ending. And then in general, we have the films of Tarkovsky and then Taxi Driver and Light Sleeper, which of course he wrote. Did you have to study any of these films or read Schrader's book before filming First Reformed? I actually read, read Schrader's book before I met him for Dog Eat Dog. If I'm going for a meeting with a new director and they've written a book, it, it often is an interesting way into their work. And I also I read it in college too, so I still have my copy. 
regardless, you know, one of my favorite things about working with Paul is that it is, it is like going to school. There's a lot of films that you list or films that I've seen before and, and studied on my own, but um, it's such a joy to be able to have him list off 30 to 40 films and you go and you watch them and break them down. You know, not, not just watch them, but look at every frame and really think about how the film's put together. And, and it's a great learning and, and something that I am constantly doing. If I see a film that I like, I try to take it home and I try to go through frame by frame and scene by scene and think about, okay, how, what, what works or what's really interesting in this film. And that's basically the process that I go through with Paul is that you know, we start, he says, I think these 10 to 15 films, 20 films, whatever it may be, are interesting. And uh, let's talk about how they work. And so I'll break them down and we'll talk about how they work. And then things will come up. Other films that aren't listed there will be said, oh, you know, the, the candle scene would be great if we did in this style. And he'll reference you know, Silent Light or something like that. You know? and, and then you'll go and you look at Silent Light and be like, okay, I think that's interesting. So in the end, the pile of films that I looked at for First Reformed uh, must have been 50 plus. How else did you prepare yourself to, I guess, to adhere to this particular set of rules? Yeah, I mean, you know, originally, um, earlier drafts of the script were in black and white. So I sort of started preparing myself for a black and white film. And I really, uh, we were looking at um, films like, like Lenny or In Cold Blood, Conrad Hall, or um, I love like James Wong Howe, these sort of really beautiful black and white films done with very stark lighting. You know, I think now cinematography is very soft. We have all these great digital sources and we're able to create this very, very soft light and, and lack of shadows is seemingly naturalistic, you know, but there was a time when naturalism and arty films were hard sources and hard light. And so I sort of started in that place. And then as the film evolved into a color film, I had to marry the sensibility of something like the way Conrad Hall uses really sharp sources in, in, in Cold Blood to a sort of softer color world. Because you just can't do such hard sources within the color world. It, it looks awkward. So I guess I sort of like prepared myself through that vein and then found my way with Brisson and Dreyer and by osmosis, just by exposing yourself to the work, you were getting yourself into the proper mindset for making a film in this particular cinematic style. Yeah, exactly. And then, I mean, ultimately, every film can be broken down into four parts. I mean, obviously, they're different things, but you've got day interiors, day exteriors, night interiors, night exteriors. And so you think about, okay, here are all these films that I've looked at. What do I like? And then you start to pick it apart. And I like to make you know, these documents that label it all and, and, and diagnose it all and sort of put it in its own box. And then from there, you start testing. You know? And um, the folks at Ari here in you know, New York and New Jersey were incredibly generous to us and let me do you know, multiple camera tests, you know, both to find what the right format was, but also what the right lenses were and, and what the light, right lighting style it was. So I would say that I did three sets of lighting tests and camera tests to get to the look of the film. I had an incredible colorist, Tim Masick at Company 3, and figuring out what the LUT looked like and, and how that should impact the way that it was shot. And for many reasons, we had to shoot digitally. And Paul and I talked about it. How do we embrace the digital quality of the Alexa, which, you know, I, I think film is a beautiful thing, and I would love to keep shooting film, but it's not always financially 
feasible. And I think digital is also its own beautiful thing. And, and I think that a lot of people try to sort of mix them and, and say, oh, I want this digital image to look filmic. But I think they're just totally separate streams. And I think there's a way to embrace digital that, uh, that's interesting. And that's using and leaning towards some of the hyper-sharpness of it. So I was thinking if, if Brisson wasn't shooting at 50 ASA film, didn't have one lens that opened, you know, that space stop was, I don't know, a four or five, six or whatever it may be, what would he do? He has this option. And, you know, for me, his films are all about just like him both leading the viewer but letting the viewer sort of pick apart the image on their own. And uh, Paul and I landed on this thing of like, well, if things were kind of in this ultra focus, you know, if we shot at a really deep stop and everything was really crisp, then would the viewer maybe want to lean in a little bit more and say, okay, well, let me pick apart what's going on here with Toller, or maybe let me look in the background and see what's going on here to the side with Mary or whatever it may be. So through various different tests, we sort of came to this point where um, we were framing in 1331 and also this sort of ultra-focused digital look. And as a result, I, I chose Master Primes because I, I wanted something really beautiful. But I think that Master Primes, at a deep stop, really start to take on this, this look where you have almost these multi-different planes of focus. And I think that all contributed to, to what, we, what we put on the screen in the end. And I know it's not how really anyone intended the final film to be viewed, but what I tried doing when I was watching it is I turned the color off. Uh, yeah. And there's just something about the framing and the tonalities, and there's a definition, but there's also a softness to it that feels very natural, but also very stylized. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously I, I, I struggled with that transition of going from black and white to color, and you know, there's sort of a weekend where we found out, and I sort of just dove into a bunch of different movies and started to think about what that would look like. And in the end, um, it is a color film, but it's a color film so desaturated and so drained. I'd sort of tried to keep it as close to the original intentionality of, of, uh, of black and white as, as possible. A key element of transcendental filmmaking is withholding anything that might be construed as giving something to the audience, be it information, movement, inflection, subjectivity, and I have another list that I want us to go through this time of, of withheld things. And, and the first is withholding composition, specifically with the 1331 frame. Yeah, I mean, I think what Paul is pointing to is just what happens off screen. You know, when you frame for 1331, there's not a lot you can put in there. You can do a sort of medium shot, close up, and then you have to be pretty far back to get a two shot you really are restricted to what you can put on the frame. And so what it allows you to do is, is use the space around, the space that is now black, to stage action. And how you go about doing that, you know, is I'm trying to think about within First Reformed if there's something that, that really shows that. But, you know, for me, thinking about it now, it's more just, you know, if you had Toller there and Mary was wandering in the background and then she poked her head in and said something and, you know, that kind of use of it or use for, to heighten dramatic tension in some way. Or like in the scene where they find, was it, is it Michael's, the, the husband? Oh yeah, that's a great where, example. Where they find his, his letter. Yeah, or even when they find his body. Mm. You know, you sort of have this moment of horrific, you get to see the corpse and then it's sort of hidden from you, but you know it's there. 
and you don't know if you're going to look back at it. Or, and I think that, that could serve to really heighten dramatic tension. But listen, 1331 is an amazing format to shoot in. It's so special. It, it creates something so different. And it just allows you to make really, I, I think, make a really interesting movie. Because to put in this box, literally, and to restrict and, and to pare down everything. You know, Paul also said, like, if it has wheels or it can move, it should move. You know, this is a film about spareness. And then to put in 1331, you really get to control what's there. And Grace Yun and Olga Mill, the production designer and costume designer, really were able to work with that to a great extent, both choosing their colors and, and also choosing sort of what we see. A couple of other rules that are mentioned are no over the shoulders and something he calls planarmetric composition. Yeah, I mean, you know, over the shoulder is very hard in a film in which you, you frame 1331 to do an over the shoulder. I mean, it would take up half the frame. So it allows you, I think, to, to get really close to characters. And, and, you know, Deacons talks about this as well. You know, using a wider angle lens up close, he doesn't really do, you know, in Coen Brother films, he doesn't really do over the shoulder. It's all inside, you're with the character. And, you know, sort of, I that a little bit for sure. You know, I, every close-up you see in this movie is on a 27mm lens. And there's something about the 27 in 1331 that just, I think you get so close and, and we're, we're probably two and a half feet away from the character and the camera's just there and it's absorbing the actor. And uh, I think there's something that, that you can really connect with. So no over the shoulders, I, you know, I think it's great. Um, planar metric, you've got this square in the middle of this frame. It's just wonderful to be able to create all these parallel lines. And that's really what that's about. That's, that's about sort of doing as much as you can do to get things perpendicular, to get things straight, you know, to limit what's in the frame. The tango head, which is uh, a piece of kit that goes underneath between the, the O'Connor head and, and uh, you know, the dovetail, uh, was like my best friend. It just allows you to tilt, you know, a little 45 degrees this way, 45 degrees that way, 10 degrees, 5 degrees, whatever it may be. And that was like my best friend. I remember Nina Kuhn, the gaffer, and I would sort of stand at the monitor and be like, is it level? Is it not level? You know, because it really, everything really sung when it was planar metric, when, when it was level, when it, when it felt, when you really felt the room. And then, did we talk about square punching? Is that something you want to talk square about? Square punching? Where, mean, was actors that? in their singles directly in the center of the shot? Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of the framing requirements were, are kind of dictated by Brisson. You know, they're dictated by Diary of a Country Priest. When you're shooting 1331, you can only really fit someone in there, and it's not gonna be an over, and you're not really gonna, you're gonna do a very tight eye line, but you're not gonna do an eye line you know, off to the side, or you'd be cutting half their body. So um, the square cut punching sort of came from that, um, dictated by 1331. And uh, you know, being on the 27 mil, being close to them, uh, that also just sort of felt right, and then having a very, very tight eye line basically to the map box more than to the actor, which makes it very challenging. But Ethan is a phenomenal actor, so it's really great to see him work at that, that level. And then talking about challenging, no pans, no moves. As a rule. As a rule, yeah. I mean, we move the camera about seven times. I might be wrong in that, so you'll have to check me. But um, Paul was really influenced and really loved the look of Ida. And uh, I think there's one, like, one tilt in there or something. But otherwise, it is challenging because you have to know what you're going to shoot before you shoot it. You have to really work with the actors and say, listen, this is the limit of the frame. Do what you do within these very constrained space or take this step, you'll be blocked or whatever it may be. And it's sort of a relearning for everyone. But 
It's interesting because it took a lot of work to sort of get it there. But when you're watching it, I, I don't actually feel it that much. Right, and also the fact that you do move the camera, it allows you to control the expectations of the audience because by breaking those rules, you catch people's attention. You remind them that they're watching a movie and suddenly you've re-engaged with them. But then you're back to following the rules again. You're back to withholding. Oh, completely, completely. And, and I think Paul decided to break his own rules at really interesting times. Can we, can we talk about that? Like, what can you tell us about breaking the rules and, and how those moments came about? Well, some of them are very organic. Some of them are very planned. The Dolly movement, where we go from Mary leading us to the garage, I remember setting up the shot and I was gonna do it as, you know, a single shot of, of her entering and then I was gonna move and be on the sidewalk and watch her come down and, you know, we sort of had this whole plan. And then Paul said, why don't you get the track out? And I was like, well, we don't do that. And he's like, well, we're gonna do it today. So I think there's some things that are sort of just his intuition as a filmmaker to say like, this is a shot that moves. And as a result, we got this beautiful shot of her just barely entering at the edge of the frame and then dolling down and you see this very strange tree. And uh, we, sh we shot it at Magic Hour and I got this great background, which we toned down significantly, but it was a really beautiful shot. Whereas, you know, the final shot between Toller and Mary, in which we sort of circle around them, that was in the script from day one. And to me, I think it's just such a powerful sequence. And if we had shot it all handheld, that shot would not have been as impactful. But it moves you and it's, it sort of takes your breath away. Uh, what an unexpected thing to do. You know, circle track, first of all, is an unexpected thing. And then, you know, to do it in that moment, I think, was great. It's the peak of the movie. Like, everything is building up to this moment. It's, it reminds me of um, De Palma's Obsession, where by the end of it, all you can do is spin around. Right. And, and then the movie ends. Yeah, I, I felt that way too. I, I remember watching an initial cut and, and seeing when he cut out of that shot. And I was just like, oh, that's just awesome. It's just the perfect, for me, it's the perfect moment to let go. And, I, and we filmed it, and we, <laughs> they kissed for a long time. And we filmed it for a long time. And just the, the, the moment that he chose, Toller sort of leans back and we come around and it's just, I don't know, it just takes, takes you right there. You said that you only had a few focal lengths to shoot this film. Yeah, I, I shot the whole film on a 27, a 32, and a 40. And I would say that the 32 I use pretty rarely, but the 27 for close-ups and the 40 mil for wide shots, which is a bit paradoxical. But you know, as I was doing tests, I just felt like it was more interesting to be close to them on these wide shots and then sort of be further away and make them feel more present through being long lensy. Speaking about the transcendental style, Schrader has said, good things happen when you slow down. Uh, how, how does that apply to a 20-day production schedule? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a funny thing. But I think when you're making a film that, that doesn't have a lot of money, restrictions are a really good thing. And putting yourself in a box is a really good thing. And that was sort of a great lesson that we, I learned from going from Dog Eat Dog to First Reformed. Dog Eat Dog has a lot of different sets and a lot of different set pieces and a lot of different things happening and you sort of feel everything happening all at once. And First Reformed has probably less than 15 locations. And so if you choose those locations very well and you slow down and you take your time at every location, I think something magical can really happen within this style of filmmaking and within this type of film. You know, I, I don't think you're gonna necessarily make an action film in 15 locations. But for First Reformed, 
limiting the amount of locations and being able to really precisely choose those locations and, and think about you know, where the sun's coming from and where we can put the camera and, and the feasibility of it. it. It all sort of helps to sort of put it in a box and make something interesting. And I worked very hard with the first AD to really schedule those days and figure out how we could find space and time within a 20-day shoot to, to give, give the actors and give Paul and give the production the time it needed to sort of like find all the different elements. But also, you know, you just you also need just incredibly talented people. And Ethan is one of those people who can walk into a scene and, and turn it on in a, just a really phenomenal way. And so is Paul, obviously. <laughs> we talked about restrictions in the production sense and how you restricted yourself creatively on the set. But what did you, as a cinematographer, restrict from yourself? What did you withhold from yourself? I mean, I guess, you know, all those things that Paul put in place, not moving the camera, having to rely very heavily on staging, letting things linger in shots, doing all of that. I guess those are the restrictions. I mean, to, to me, you know, as I said, choosing three focal lengths and deciding to be at those uh, was a restriction. Otherwise, was this a process of unlearning because it is such a kind of classical approach, a very formal approach? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess in a, to a certain extent, the only way to answer that question is that, like, you're right, I, I, I did retrain my brain to only be looking at things in a certain way and this sort of muted color and, and things that don't move and how do we photograph this space in one or two sizes. But I think that happens with every project. You sort of take on the characteristics of the movie that you're making, or for me at least. I, I find it very hard to separate myself from being in the process that I'm in. You sort of do a deep dive and then you're there. I mean, I remember a friend of mine, I forget what film it was, but you know, asked me when I was making First Reformed if I wanted to go see something, something anamorphic and big in scope and you know, probably a Western, and uh, I can't. I can't, get, I can't see that kind of film right now. I'd have to be, be watching Bergman and you know, looking at, at films that, that are, are 1331 and that have that type of textured lighting and looking at those photo books that I love, Gregory Crudson or whatever it may be, you know, to sort of get my mind in the place to make this film. Otherwise, I'd think you just show up and you just have all these like loose ends and maybe it's sort of like a weird monk-like approach, but uh, we were making a film about a monk. You have to live that to a certain extent. Absolutely. How did it impact your creativity moving forward? Now that you don't have to live in that mindset anymore, do you find that your experience making First Reformed has rubbed off on you? Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly. Um, but then at the same time, no. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, obviously you learn a lot of lessons and I had such a great crew that I learned so much from. But, you know, in every project it requires different tools, you know. So there was a light on First Reformed that I loved. That was the perfect light to do First Reformed. And on the next project I say, oh, I need that exact light. I can't do the project without that, that exact light. And I get on to the next project and I never use that light because it's not right. I don't need this little small pointed source. Now I need big sources, you know, that come through multiple layers of diffusion that are very far away. You know, it's, it's like, it's only a one-to-one -one if I made another First Reformed. And even then, I think I would challenge myself to do something completely different. I remember the week after I wrapped First Reformed, I went and did a commercial. And the commercial was this like intensely bright, colorful thing. 
and I felt so refreshed and ready to do it because my brain had been so trained into like the sort of subtleties of, of pale blue and <laughs> green and, and desaturated everything. And I just found that, I, you know, I had to do 27 different color lighting setups in this commercial. And I just found that I could find them very easily. Not very easily, but they came. You know, whereas maybe if I had been shooting commercials for the past six months and then come, come to that job, I never would have been able to sort of discover that. Um, I think what's so exciting about, you know, being a cinematographer is, is being able to do lots of different things and pinching your brain in lots of different places. And, and uh, I think that's, that's the biggest lesson from First Reformed. Speaking of color, can you talk a little bit about the palette of the film and how you restricted yourself in that way? What colors did you use? What colors did you want to stay away from? Well, yeah, I mean, it was, it was really just tone down everything as much as possible. You know, if, if we've come from this black and white place, the idea of going to color was not to then do a, you know, a Mishima, you know, do something like Paul's done in the past, or, or even Dog Eat Dog, which is this, you know, fuchsia pink. It was to just sort of choose colors in which, you know, you really had just desaturation. You know, you, you didn't have a lot, of, uh, uh, a lot of vibrancy. So, you know, we stayed away from bright reds and all that stuff. And, and Gracian and, and Olga Mill were really instrumental in, in how do you costume someone and how do you set, set a scene in, in which there aren't those colors. And then we would introduce it in really amazing ways. You know, like I think about the, the bomb, you know, the, the detonation device being wrapped in that Shinto orange almost, you know, and it's just sort of like, whoa, I remember, getting the camera out and seeing that and be like, oh, that's, this is something we're looking at now. If all you've seen is sort of gradations of black and white infused color, things that are on the more dull end of the spectrum, these sort of dull greens and dull blues, then when you get to that or when you get to Toller outside on the bicycle and you sort of have this like harsh winter sun and the, the sky is bright blue or when you get to Toller in the dystopian landscape, and the uh, the sunset is sort of this crazy, insane fall sunset. I can't imagine a conversation about First Reformed without bringing up the vision sequence. Michael, he was just really strong. How so? Um, he listened, he was kind. We used to do this thing called the Magical Mystery Tour. It sounds silly, but um, we would uh, share a joint and lay on top of each other, fully clothed. And we would try to get as much body-to-body -body contact as possible. We'd have our hands out and they would just look straight into each other's eyes and move them in unison, like right, left, right, left. And then we would breathe in rhythm. You want me to do this? No, I didn't mean that. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I guess I, yeah, because I did. Uh, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, that's that's all Paul. <laughs> you know, we just figured out how to 
how to execute it on our with our with our means. You feel that most of the effect and the impact of that scene comes from the editorial process. Yeah, I mean, every shot of this movie was planned before we even started shooting. You know, I had a deck of 150 pages of this is where characters will move and this is what will happen. So we knew going into it that that this sequence would happen. And and, and Frank Murray, the producer, and I worked uh, very hard to sort of figure out how to do it. And uh, that was a bit of a pet project for him. And I, I, I think it's great. I mean, the dynamics of it, it's not really a cinematography question. Like, yeah, we, you know, we used a crane, you know, like <laughs> I could talk about that, but I think what's impactful about the moment is just that Paul wanted to go to a sort of Tarkovsky level. You know, he wanted to take this thing, like he, he himself would say, what would Tarkovsky do? You know, he would make them fly and they flew. And so uh, I think that's, it's just, it's just a moment of one of the many things that makes this film special. You know, I think no film is, is special by adhering to one rule. I think that films are this beautiful, unique thing because they make up lots of different parts and lots of different ideas. And uh, I think First Reformed, First Raider is a culmination of a lot of different ideas and a lot of things he's been toying with from the craziness of Mishima to uh, the austerity of Light Sleeper there's so much of him in there. Taxi Driver, obviously, there's like direct references to Taxi Driver, which, you know, I think that's, that's what makes it interesting. That was cinematographer Alexander Dynan talking about his work on the Paul Schrader film First Reformed. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts and articles from American Cinematographer Magazine on the web at ascmag.com. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.